Well, if you can't afford to raise a family, nothing else matters. I mean, that has to be the number one policy priority across the board of, of any political party at any level. You know, can we create the conditions where a young couple can afford to raise a family? That has to be our number one priority. Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and you just heard economist Mike Moffitt on Canada's housing market, and that's what this episode is focused on, an overheated market that is looking a lot like a bubble in certain regions of our country. The big banks have all recently raised concerns. Scotiabank says the housing market is off the charts. TD calls it white hot. CIBC says unsustainable. And RBC notes that property values have soared to levels far outside historical norms. BMO has said that Canada is playing with fire. Now, the Bank of Canada has not been as vocal in past weeks, but after we recorded this episode earlier this week, the Bank of Canada's governor, Tiff Macklem, finally came out and acknowledged that, in his words, Canadians are stretching and that is worrying. If Canadians are basing their decisions on the kinds of price increases that we've seen recently are going to continue indefinitely, that would be a mistake. They're not sustainable. I'm joined on this episode by two guests. First, John Pasalas, president of Realosophy Realty, a Toronto real estate brokerage and a specialist in real estate data analysis. He's been vocal for months about his concerns with our unsustainable housing market, well ahead of other analysts. Next, economist and professor Mike Moffat joins me to discuss his recent writing, what he dubs Ontarians on the Move, a series on population growth, migration, and what's going on with Ontario's housing market. This problem of unsustainable house prices presents a number of concerns, of course, as we get into in this episode. And while it's not a problem the federal government can solve alone, given the acute challenges we see in particular regions, it's still very much an area that warrants federal attention. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Where is the market at to date? In 2019, in the financial system review, it was said that the vulnerabilities associated with high household debt and balances have declined modestly, but remain significant. But they noted that the real rapid rise in house prices at the time, at least, had slowed in Toronto and Vancouver. CMHC then said the bottom was going to fall out of the market as the pandemic hit. That didn't happen. Instead, we've seen an explosion of prices. So where are we at not only in Toronto, but, but beyond? So an unbelievably competitive market. I mean, I will say that we, in, in the GTA, at least in the Toronto area, we started noticing an explosion in the market, like in the last couple of months of 2019 to early 2020. It was unbelievably competitive in the first quarter of 2020. A lot of people were comparing it to the bubble of, of 2017. And then it just stopped largely due to COVID. And then since sort of the things opened up again in, in June 2020, the market has been unbelievably competitive. Prices in the suburbs are rising over 30% for houses. And we're seeing similar rates of growth across Canada, really, and, and, and not just in Toronto, Vancouver, but a lot of smaller markets are seeing this, this rapid acceleration in, uh, in demand and prices. Which seems to price out a huge section of the Canadian population out of home ownership in a serious way. In my riding here in the East End of Toronto, you're lucky to find a two-bedroom bungalow for under a million dollars. I don't, I don't think you can anymore. Professionals maybe can continue to get in the market, but what people might think of as middle class, whether it's teachers or nurses or others, it, it's hard to understand, at least sitting here in Toronto, how anyone could imagine buying a home with, with the current state of affairs. Yeah, and I think that's the big problem we have right now. I mean, I've had multiple 
you know, people email me, home buyers, trying to figure out what to do. And, and the troubling thing is, many of these people are like dual income households, you know, low hundred thousand income, which is above the median household income. Exactly. They saved a hundred. They've saved a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, but their max budget is seven hundred thousand dollars. That's just all they could afford. You know, and they ask me, well, where can I buy? And my answer to them is pretty much nowhere. Honestly, if you look in the entire GTA area, which covers all like the four suburban regions and Toronto, you might have about a couple hundred houses that have sold in the first three months of this year for under 700,000. It makes up about 1% of all transactions, whereas last year, it made up about 18% of all transactions. So, you know, if you were that dual income, you know, slightly above the median, you know, you at least had some opportunities a year ago. And that's just been like destroyed this year. And, and those people can't get into the housing market. And, and I don't know what you say to them. I mean, their, their income solid, they have good jobs, they have an amazing down payment, but they can't buy a house for their family. And it's easy to say go and rent. But the reality is, I mean, there are not a lot of three bedroom rentals if you have a couple kids, you know, so that's not a great option either. So it's very difficult for, you know, these younger households to be getting into the market right now. And that question of generational fairness, I've spoken to folks at Gen Squeeze who pointed to me evidence, so this is years ago now, that it used to take five years, 40 years ago, it took five years to save up a down payment. They were pointing to the fact that now it would take over 12 years, over 14 years in city centers. It's way worse now. Oh, it's way worse now. Like, I mean, you can't even compare. I mean, I, I you know, I'm active on Twitter. I got a lot of people. And anytime I raise these issues, you know, all of the, I feel like the people my age, like the Gen Xers or, or the boomers, you know, come out and say, well, they're just complaining. It was hard for me to buy a home as well. I mean, no, it wasn't. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, when I bought my first house, I, I think average house prices were about five times household income back then. And today they're about 10 times household income. And the problem is home buyers can only borrow at max about five times their household income. Like that's just what the math works out to when you have the stress test and the gross debt service ratio. Like the most they could borrow is maybe four and a half to five times their median household income. So how do you buy a house when the median house is 10 times your income? You know, you have to have huge down payments. And that's what we're finding. Like the, the most active buyers are people who are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts from family who are existing homeowners. So, and I think this is one of the massive problems. I mean, Unless you come from a wealthy family, it's even harder to get into the housing market and to buy a home today. And I think that's really been one of the challenges that it's really, it's just amplified, you know, the, these differences, these wealth differences between homeowners and renters. Right. Yeah. It's exacerbating inequalities unquestionably. And, and do you see it getting worse? I, I saw, I think it was a BMO analyst that was a bit hesitant to use a bubble, but certainly was talking about an overheated market. Do you see this getting to a point where it has nowhere to go but down? Should we be worried about that in terms of it's a challenge for people to get into the market, but then there are people who are getting into the market today. And should we be concerned about the sustainability of their finances? Yeah, I think we need to be concerned. I mean, it, and it's hard to say what the path is. Like at the end of the day, in the Toronto area, you know, house prices are 10 times median incomes. In, in Vancouver, they're even higher, right? So, you know, just when I think, good Lord, how much higher can home prices get? They seem to go higher. So I don't want to say that they can't go higher, but you certainly do think how sustainable is this in Toronto and how much higher can they possibly go? I mean, especially with, with rates as low as they are, rates have been trending down for like 20 years. And this is one of a big factor that has, you know, helped push house prices up. 
but we effectively hit the floor, right? The challenge I think right now is going to be that we have a lot of optimistic investors who are looking at these price gains, you know, and, and it's interesting. I just tweeted an article today from Benjamin Tall, who's, who's an economist at CIBC. And he's talking about how investors are flooding in the condo market. They're just buying up all these condos. And basically, he said that even though they're losing 600 bucks a month on the cash flow because their rent isn't high enough, his argument is that's completely rational because condo prices are just going to keep going up in Toronto. You know, if you think house prices are high now, they're just going to keep getting higher, right? So when investors see this or hear this from bank economists, you know, and even our Bank of Canada has basically said rates are going to stay low for years. All of this fuels investor optimism, which could easily push prices higher, right? I don't think it's going to be a solid foundation for our market, but certainly I think we need to be concerned that prices can go higher if this is the sentiment in the market that, that we're seeing. And not only concern for individual buyers who want to get into the marketplace or who are already into the marketplace and we don't want them losing their homes, who are, who are really, in some cases, really extending themselves, that they might get that down payment from a family member, but really extending themselves on, on an ongoing basis. But there are also concerns about the economy writ large. When I see Canadian housing as a share of GDP over 9%, up from 7.5% just a year earlier versus other countries like the US where it's half that. It does seem that if there is a downward trajectory at any moment in time, it will negatively affect individual lives, but it also means there are great concerns about our economy writ large. 100%, and that's a massive risk when we have this investor-fueled housing market that is inflating prices. And yeah, on the one hand, the Bank of Canada is arguing, well, this is great, it's supporting our economy. But I feel like it's very short-sighted. In the long term, you're right, it's not positive to have it taking up so much of our growth in our GDP. Because if you look at if you look at all of the markets, the housing markets just internationally, they've been the most vulnerable. I mean, the higher the share of GDP, the more investors that are involved, the higher prices go. Usually you just end up with a more vulnerable market in the future, right? And if we get a point where prices fall, you're right. I mean, it's as a GDP, it's not great, obviously, because all of a sudden housing investment is going to be a significantly lower portion of our GDP. But it also has significant effects, obviously, on households, on consumer spending. Like it's just have these massive ripple effects. And I think that's the big concern that we're just inflating things in the short term without thinking about sort of the longer term downsides of, of this rapidly accelerating housing market. And when we look to tackle the problem, one challenge from the federal government's perspective is that not everywhere is at the same challenge. And so it does require yeah. partnering with local and provincial governments. But even when we look at a national level, at some of the, the factors that are driving this rapid acceleration of prices, you've mentioned incredibly low borrowing rates that the Bank of Canada said are going to be with us for an extended period of time and have been with us for an extended period of time already. Mike Moffat has written about population growth and how there just isn't a sustainability as between supply, which is clearly being outpaced by demand, partly because of, of population growth. And he puts a heavy emphasis yeah. on that. People have previously focused on foreign buyers and foreign investment. And that's why some provinces have taken some targeted measures to, to address that. Obviously, I've seen economists say recently that because of the worry about missing out now, it's also pulling demand forward. And so we're now in this, what feels like a bubble environment of people just worried about missing out. So so then getting in in a way that probably isn't sustainable. If you were to run down the list, I don't know if my list is exhaustive even, what are the, the key factors that are really driving this unsustainable growth? So 
It's a, it's a great question. And I think over time, there have been different key factors that have driven it. You know, for, for a long time, the, the growth was fundamental in Toronto. I mean, it hasn't always been like this, this crazy bubble. But I think right now, I think the big issue is that we're kind of at this point where we have a, a crisis, obviously, in our housing markets, and, and especially in the big cities in the GTA and, and Vancouver. And I don't want to be like Toronto, Vancouver centric, but the reality is those are markets where house prices are so much higher compared to incomes. And I think when you have that at the federal level, I think policymakers need to make a decision. You know, do we want house prices, houses in general, single family homes to be places for home buyers to buy and live in and raise their family and work? Or is it supposed to be just another asset class, right? That investors can go in and trade in and don't care about what they pay, don't care about driving up prices, don't care about their rents, with this expectation, it's just going to be higher tomorrow. And, and I really do think that this is a turning point. And I do think that if we don't want housing to make up that big of a share of our GDP, if we want more affordability, we have to make it harder for investors to be getting into the market. You know, And I don't mean all like if someone wants to buy a multi-unit residential building, all the power to them. But you know, the problem now is that investors are getting into single family housing, right? And all that does is it drives up prices, right? When they get into the resale market, they just drive up prices. They're not creating demand. A lot of policymakers said they're critical on the supply side because they create demand. No, they don't. At the end of the day, if we have a shortage of housing, if the investors weren't there, we'd have end users buying condominiums. And one of the challenges right now on the supply side, and this is I feel like people don't talk about, is that if you look at on the supply side of, of what's being built, sort of that CMHC classifies as single family homes, more than 50% of the condominiums are actual rental supply because they're being bought by investors. So when we think about how many properties are we building that can be bought by end users to, to live in and raise a family, we're significantly underbuilding compared to 20 years ago because we're actually just building micro rentals that cater to investors. And we're doing that because investors will pay way more than end users. So I think when you when you try to sort of limit the investor demand, you're actually helping on both the demand side and the supply side of the equation by making it easier for end users to get into the market. Now, you've spoken and written previously, not only about policy measures governments might want to consider, but also just the signals that officials put out and how much those signals matter. The Bank of Canada, I think, has continued to put out unfortunate signals when I hear the Bank of Canada governor say, well, all growth is good growth right now. And that concerns me a little bit because, as you say, growth in a class of goods that really is a necessity and isn't like other investment goods, we shouldn't be just saying, well, thanks for the growth and and, and avoid the consequences and ignore the consequences otherwise. They haven't raised concerns really about the the growth in the housing market particularly. CMHC did. They raised concerns that we'd see a downturn and then we didn't see a downturn. And you've even said that flagging those concerns and then having those concerns unrealized has also potentially fueled fueled growth in the market. Yeah, 100%. And I think this is like an area of economics that I think policymakers aren't putting enough attention on. And it's the narratives of of our economics that really shape people's decisions, right? And yeah, I highlighted, you you mentioned a couple, I mean, on the Bank of Canada side, they're fueling this narrative that prices are going to keep going up, like that is the signal they're giving to the market, not just by saying rates will stay low for a long time, but by saying house prices aren't too high right now. 
Like this, this is not, and the message is it's not as bad as 2016 or 2017, which I feel is the wrong narrative to be sending out. Usually policymakers are concerned about house prices rising 30 to 35% per year. You know, I think they're making an exception now because <clears throat> we're in a pandemic, we're in a recession. So they'll take any growth or money that they can get and not worrying about the consequences, you know, long-term consequences. So I do think that's one challenge on the Bank of Canada side that they're deliberately, I feel like, trying to stoke the market and fuel demand. I mean, I think CMHC's narratives, I, I also think they're problematic. I think they're just more, I don't think they were deliberately trying to do anything. I just think it was the wrong messaging. I think especially when they came out so stridently arguing that the market's going to crash, policymakers need to think about their messaging. Because again, I do think that fueled this belief now from investors that if this massive recession can't take down the market, nothing will, right? So as an investor, you don't really care what you're spending on your house because you have this expectation that it's just going to keep going up forever. So I do think that policymakers do need to think about the messages that they're putting out because it does shape the narratives and the beliefs that drive people's home buying and investment decisions. And it's partly kind of contributing to the, the, the bubble mentality and this fear of missing out we're seeing today. Do you think where we are today that that is starting to shift? When I see concerns that you have been raising are now reflected recently from BMO, Scotia, CIBC, RBC, that the big banks are all coming to the public and saying, we're concerned about where the housing market is at. Yeah, I mean, I think it's positive that they're coming out now. I mean, I think one critique I have out of all of them is, I mean, house prices are going up 35% per year. Like, of course, we should be concerned. I mean, you know, and I, and I, and again, like, you know, maybe I'm an idealist, but my feeling is CMHC, the bank should have been really raising the alarms months ago, right? The momentum of the market, you know, and yes, housing markets are difficult to predict. But when I suggested things were going to be a bubble back in December, it wasn't just a random prediction, which is when you looked at the momentum of the market, that's where we were going. We can't predict the shocks, the, the, the big changes, but this was just a continuation. It's like looking at a car that's racing 100 kilometers per hour and trying to predict where's it going to be in, a, in 30 seconds. You know what I mean? It doesn't take, it does not that hard to figure out where it's going to be. And I think this is sort of one of the challenges. I mean, it's it's great that the, the bank economists are coming out right now, but I really think, especially like on CMHC's side, I think organizations like CMHC, I think one of the challenges is think about economic analysis. You know, they're even coming out now, their most recent report for Toronto is they're arguing that house prices aren't overvalued, Right. And again, I think this is one of the challenges in, in economic literature and research that they're not right. At the end of the day, when you when when we go back and look at the models, a lot of economists were using even back in the U.S. bubble in 20, 2005 and 2006, almost nobody predicted that the housing market was overvalued in the U.S. Most of the top academic papers were arguing that it was justified based on fundamentals. And we saw after the fact it wasn't right. And I do think this is one of the concerns with a lot of the economic research and the fact that, you know, it's, it's not timely. <clears throat> the reports come really late. I mean, CBC now in March 2021 is, is talking about their concern about overheating. But this overheating has been going on for at least six months, right? And I think we just need more because I think if policymakers are, are kind of coming out with more timely commentary, trying to calm down the market is what we should be doing. That narrative would have come out a lot earlier and hopefully may have influenced 
the market and, and cooled it down. But, you know, we have a bit of a, a, a rapid boom now and we'll see where it takes us. Well, the comment around what is or isn't overvalued also in some ways depends upon the communities we want to see from a policy perspective, because it may be, it may not be, but it may be their view that it is not overvalued in the sense that someone purchasing today isn't going to lose their shirt. But from a policy perspective where I see the vast majority of Canadian families are unable to purchase a home, a necessary good, it seems overvalued from that perspective. So there are different ways of breaking that down. Now you've said policymakers should send better signals and effectively say, if, if the market doesn't come back to reality, I suppose, that we are going to implement measures to make sure that it does. When you look to what those measures might be, you've largely emphasized signals, but do you have a sense of what those measures should be that they'd be putting on the table if, if it doesn't come back to reality after they after they send those signals out? So like I said, I, I think the most important thing that policymakers could do now is if they're going to kind of take anyone out of the market or cool anyone's demand, I think it should be investors. I mean, to me, that's the only rational group that the federal government could be targeting. I don't agree. I think there's like a Globe and Mail op-ed this time about should, should they increase the stress test and make it harder? No, it's already unbelievably hard for first-time buyers to get into the market. If you want to increase the stress test, increase the stress test for investors. At the end of the day, investors buying resale homes, it's not necessary, right? They're just fueling the demand and fueling prices. So my feeling is if they're going to target anybody, it really should be resale investors who are are just using real estate as the best investment. You know, we talk about why is it such a big share of our GP? Because as a business owner, it seems irrational. But if I had 200 grand, I could just go buy a million dollar house. And in three years, I would have doubled my money net of any transaction costs. What investment can you make as a business where you can double your cash in three years? Nowhere, except residential real estate, right? right. And and I think this is my point. We need to make it harder for investors, and I invest in real estate, to make that calculation. Like, it shouldn't be that easy. They should be putting their money. If you want to invest, build something. Build a triplex. You know, Use that capital to actually better use, not to just swallow up single-family houses that just drive prices higher and make it harder for end users to get into the market. New Zealand seems to be going in this very direction where they're, they're taking measures to address investment in particular in their housing sector. Yeah, I I mean, to me, that makes sense. And there's different things that you can do. I mean, increasing the down payment requirement, which they did to 40% is massive. That makes it a lot harder to get into the market. I mean, we have tons of investor clients and, and the reality is condos, are not the best return or best investment. But the most people go to buy an investment condo because it's price lower, you need a lower down payment, it's easier to qualify for, right? But the reality is spending more, getting a triplex or fourplex or multi-unit property is usually a much better investment, both in terms of your cash flow and potential appreciation. There's less demand because people can't afford it. They don't have the money, right? So if you increase the down payment requirement, it's going to be a lot harder for people to even to buy an investment condo tomorrow because they'll need much more money down. The deputy governor of the Bank of New Zealand says, we are now concerned about the risk of sharp correction in the housing market poses for financial stability. There is evidence of a speculative dynamic emerging with many buyers becoming highly leveraged. A growing number of highly indebted borrowers, especially investors, are now financially vulnerable to house price corrections and disruptions to their ability to service the debt. 
Highly leveraged property owners mm-hmm. and particular investors are more prone to rapid fire sales that potentially amplify any downturn. He could be speaking about Canada. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. This is exactly what's going on. So when you hear investors are driving the boom in the condo market we're seeing right now, it's the same thing. They have no problem spending $600,000 for a unit that makes them $1,600 a month in rent. They don't care about the cash flow. They don't care that they're losing $700 a month because it's going to keep going up. And yes, this makes every housing market more vulnerable. Again, if you look at most housing markets that crashed during the last financial crisis, Toronto didn't. Toronto didn't largely because we didn't have as as strong of a pool of investors dominating our housing market back then. And today we do. And yes, it does make the market significantly more vulnerable to downside risk because investors overpay when the times are good. And they're usually like quicker to dump when the times aren't good because you know, they're over leveraged or can't afford it and, and need to just move on. They're not going to stick through it the way a homeowner will, right? And find a way to make it work. So yes, definitely. And, and this is why I think it's important to potentially think about targeting investors. I don't think the federal government can do anything. You can't kill the market. Like you can't take a sledgehammer to it, right? But at a minimum, if policymakers can sort of, at least in the short term, cool the flow of investor demand. Your main ask from what I can tell would be effectively have our Bank of Canada do what New Zealand has done, make the same statements that the federal government would impose additional requirements as it relates to investments. Better if investment comes to build new homes, but otherwise restrict investment in the resale market. It seems to demand outpacing supply and just the number of people that are coming into the country, not obviously in the past year with respect to COVID, but there has been increased population growth in recent years. We also, as a federal government, should lean into continuing to partner with provinces and cities to build out supply as much as we reasonably can. Are there other measures that you think would be important to put on the table? The capital gains exemption, RBC has said it should be on the table. And I know in the US, the capital gains exemption is not unlimited. They cap it at 250,000, I think double that for joint filers. Has this been part of your thinking in any way? Are there other measures that you think should be on the table? So, I mean, the capital gains exemption, I don't think does anything to to cool our housing market, right? I think that if we want to argue that it helps bridge these wealth gaps, especially if you take some of that revenue and sort of offset it by tax benefits for renters. Yeah, that could be an argument. But the the only way it helps cool the, the housing market and bring some more balance is if, for example, you limit that to secondary properties, right? And again, this goes back to this idea that the less attractive you make it to invest or speculate in real estate, the better it is for end users, right? So if you start considering increasing capital gains on secondary properties, well, yeah, that obviously impacts people's investment decisions tomorrow. If they're paying 100% of that at their, at their marginal tax rate, it changes the dynamics a lot. Again, I think any types of policy like that, you need to do gradually because you can't sure. just come out and introduce it. Otherwise, you get this, this flood of people wanting to dump their policies before they have to obviously have significantly higher capital gains. But yeah, something like that could be a longer term policy. Unless you did again, a freeze today and said anyone who owns the asset today, but on a going forward basis, we're going we're to change the tax dynamics. Yes, exactly. Yeah. In December, you were writing worry that we'd see prices continue to escalate and, and raising these concerns that you're now raising with me all over again. If we talk again in, in September, do you see this problem as having only gotten worse? 
Yes and no. I, I think the low rise market is going to start to level off. So the market for like semis detached row houses, I think we're going to start to see more inventory come on the market. We're kind of seeing that. So we shouldn't see as rapid a growth in prices on a month over month basis. Like they're going to still be very high year over year because we're comparing to lower prices last year. So I think that will probably level off and partly because of buyer fatigue, like people can only spend so much and they're already quite high. I do think we're going to see the condo market accelerate personally. It has been accelerating since December. And I think if you, when you think about all the investors flooding into the market, this is the place that most investors are going to be going into. And I do think we're going to see like prices actually accelerate on a month over month basis in the condo market straight through probably till the end of the year. And I think that's probably the trends that I would expect. And again, depending on if there's anything that's introduced in the federal budget that tries to calm the market, that might have an effect. I don't think it will personally, because I don't think there's going to be anything dramatic to cool right. the market personally. Right. So I, I still think we're going to probably see a lot of uh, a lot of demand going forward. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights online. Certainly, it helps inform me in what I do as well. And if you have any thoughts along the way, don't hesitate to reach out. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me today. As you heard, John is focused on the signals that policymakers should be sending, and they need to address the role that investors of resale properties play in the run-up of home prices. My next guest, Mike Moffat, has a different focus and looks at the run-up of home prices before the pandemic, a run that he attributes to population growth. Mike, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. You've written a considerable amount so far in a series focused on housing growth and population. What is your answer for why we have seen the really accelerated growth in our housing market that we have? Yeah, so I think we need to sort of divide this into two periods. So we have the, the pandemic period where sort of across the country, you know, home prices are going up anywhere from about 15 to, to 40%. That's largely due to you've got a bunch of white collar professionals who have done financially really well during the pandemic. They're not they're not going on vacation. They're not commuting to work. They're not in many cases buying new cars. So they've saved up a lot of money and they're using that money to buy a bunch of different assets and driving the price of a whole lot of stuff up. And it's not just housing. You know, you look at vintage musical instruments and GameStop shares and Bitcoin and old hockey cards. You've got all of these asset classes that are just absolutely, absolutely booming. And then couple that with record low global interest rates, which make it really easy to finance a house. You've got all of these people who uh, are are buying in many cases second homes and there's you know more far more buyers and sellers that you have all of these bidding wars and that's causing prices to shoot up across the country and it's again a, an effect of all this money sloshing around but i would say before that we can't forget that we had a huge run up in housing prices in southern ontario before the pandemic like house prices between about 2015 and the start of the pandemic had almost doubled across uh, places like 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 London and smaller communities like Woodstock and Tilsonburg and places like that. And I attribute a whole lot of that to, to population growth. Over the last, over a five-year period before the pandemic, Ontario added over a million people. Over 800,000 of those come from international sources, a lot of students, visa workers, and, and things like that. In a typical five-year period, we only add about 600,000 people. So we went from adding 600,000 people a year 
to a million people a year. And we changed absolutely nothing when it came to housing. You know, we did the same thing that, that, that we sort of always do, sort of build the same amount of housing. We built a few more condos and actually a few less family homes. So it's simply just math. It's not even an economics problem. It's just a math problem. You know, if you've got, you know, a million people chasing, uh, chasing housing that can only fit 600,000, you're going to have more buyers and sellers. You're going to have bidding wars. And that's exactly, exactly what happened. So basic supply and demand, we have the same supply and we have a much higher demand given the number of people who are then coming into the country. And it, mm-hmm. it's a problem that you describe starting in urban centers, but then affecting regions and affecting even rural Canada through what you describe as the drive until you qualify effect, but also the musical chairs effect. So walk me through those those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's, it's important to note that this is a, a very regional effect, you know, because we could blame this on, you know, interest rates or things like that. But we didn't see these home price uh, escalations in North Bay. We didn't see them in Regina. We actually didn't see them in large parts of the country. It was really isolated to parts of British Columbia uh, and Southern Ontario. And what happened was as uh, population went up, and again, that was largely a combination of an increase in uh, international students and an increase in visa workers. So, and those were all things that, you know, a lot of that came from decisions that policymakers made, like the sort of two week express uh, entry visas and things like that worked really well. I mean, we were, we were trying to bring more people into the country and it worked. Uh, And what happened was that the population of of the GTA grew faster than, than housing. So if you're a young family, you're, looking for a house to buy, well, there's nothing available in Toronto, Mississauga, Brampton, Oakville, and so on. So what you do is drive until you qualify. You you get your spouse and, and, and your kid, if you have one, and you just get in the car and you start driving until you find a town that's cheap enough for for you to be able to uh, you know to to win a bid. So in this way, house price increases and population increases sort of propagated across southern Ontario like a wave. You know, so we saw Kitchener Waterloo get expensive, and then all the people in Kitchener Waterloo they get start to get price of the market. They move to Brantford. And the prices in Brantford get uh, high than uh, the the local residents of Brantford who want to you know go from an apartment to a house go. I, can't afford to live in Brantford. So we're seeing, you know, highest price increases in, in Tilsonburg. And this is what I call the sort of musical chairs effect that somebody is left standing, you know, and has to sort of leave the game and go somewhere else. So we saw these big population increases in, in places that you wouldn't expect. You know, Tilsonburg, you know, we all think of the Stomp and Tom song. Tilsonburg has been one of the hottest real estate markets in Canada, if not the planet in the last five years. Tilsonburg, wow. Thorold, Ontario, which is like a suburb of St. Catharines, is one of the fastest growing places in, in Canada. And again, it, it was just all of these places where, you know, family like families weren't moving there for jobs. They were moving there for housing and often keeping their jobs in Kitchener or Hamilton or, or wherever else. So it's been this big problem. And for an environmentalist like me, you, you really start to worry about uh, sprawls and commutes and things like that where people are moving farther and farther away from from where they're working. 
one real concern from where I sit, and I see this in my own community, which is we see in East End of Toronto incredibly high home prices, obviously. I consider myself incredibly privileged with the salary I earn, not as much as perhaps my commercial lit- litigator colleagues in a, in a former life, but still uh, incredibly privileged as a federal member of parliament. And yet here in the city of Toronto in the East End, I think I will rent forever <laughs> at this point. And I understand the great frustration of not only people my age and younger, but also parents who say our kids aren't, they're not going to raise their own families in the communities that we raise them. And it's not only an effect that's happening in Toronto, it's now, as you described with the musical chairs effect, it's an effect happening lots of different places. And there's this great generational unfairness. And yet, how do we square those concerns with, I hear, Minister Menachino and others say we need immigration for economic growth. How do we square these competing interests in some ways? Yeah, so I I think it comes from an integrated policy approach. So again, when we, whether it's the federal government on express entry or provincial governments, uh, you know, trying to encourage universities and colleges to bring in more international students of sort of fix a budget, you know, to help sort of finance our our universities and colleges, there's nothing on the sort of other side to make sure that enough housing is built. So we we need an integrated policy approach that says, okay, if, if we are going to increase the population population by X that we, you know, we build enough housing to support X and all the sort of housing rules that, that, that go around it. And, you know, I'm certainly, you know, I've written this in many of my pieces. I support express entry. I support the amount of international students we're bringing in. You know, Canada has an aging population. So having a bunch of really talented 20-somethings coming in from all over the world is a fantastic thing for us. But we need to sort of support that growth. If we change one thing, you know, if we change immigration rates, we have to change all of the other policies to support that. We can't just keep everything stable the, the, the way it, it's been. So that's, it's just for policy coherence of, you know, just making sure that our immigration policies are aligned with our housing policies. Because if they're not, you know, yes, there's all kinds of intergenerational fairness problems that that come up. And I'm really worried about that. Like we can't price an entire generation out of family homes without having that have political and economic consequences, but it affects all levels of the market. You know, social housing in Ontario, the social housing wait list had been, you know, pretty steady until about 2017, and then started increasing by about 10% a year. The timing there is not a coincidence. So, you know, we need to make sure that that we have market reforms, but also recognize that there's large you know, parts of the population that the market's, you know, the market's never going to build enough housing for the sort of bottom 20 to, to 30% uh, of the population. You know, there is a big, significant role for government there that we haven't been fulfilling. Not only is the market not providing the housing that we need as a matter of sustainable and fair growth, I would say, but having spoken to John Pasalis, he also pointed to the fact that the market is in fact fueling these challenges where you have a whole class of investors where we are treating a good that is really a necessity, as you point out, social housing, but is a necessity for all of us, is is the the most significant necessity that we are all going to pay for by virtue of rent or, or one's mortgage. And yet we are leaving it to market forces to determine how much we should pay for this necessary good. We treat it as as any other class of, of, of investments. 
Yeah, well, I would actually say it's even worse than that. It, you know, our sort of North American housing, and this is not you know unique to Canada. United States has the same problem. We took all the worst parts of free market economics, where like the you know the you know you've got the, this very limited good that the one percent ends up hoarding, uses for speculatory reasons, and so on, and then coupled it with like Soviet central planning, where you know you have all of these sort of artificial restrictions, and you have central planners deciding things on assumptions and you end up with with shortages and things like that and we fuse these two systems together <laughs> to get the sort of worst of the both worlds instead of the, the best of systems so i'm actually surprised it works as well as it does in normal times that's again what we're going to have to sort of figure out you know how can we reform the market side of the equation again so you don't have this like you know rich one percent you know land owning elites uh and the sort of rest of us having right. to sort of rent from them. But at the same time, you know, how do you change the planning and government side to create that flexibility? Where if something happens, again, like let's say our, our colleges and universities uh, get really popular and, and attract a bunch of foreign students, how can we create the conditions so that the market can respond to that quickly? Instead of just going, okay, well, this is what we've always done. And, you know, th th this is what our forecast says. So this is how many houses we're going to build and how many lots we're going to zone. Even when on the street, it's clearly obvious to everyone that, you know, the, these forecasts aren't, aren't worth the paper they're written on. Well, let's talk about solutions then. Yeah. Now at the federal level, we're not responsible for all solutions. You mentioned this really is in some cases, at least prior to the pandemic, before the market really took on a bubble-like mentality. The problems were really focused in regions. And so it may not be one single federal solution that is the answer here, but there are some federal solutions. I'll throw a few out, but I'm interested to, to know where you would prioritize your efforts if you were in my shoes. So I see New Zealand have much tighter rules as it relates to mortgages for investors. You've posted recently a bit on Twitter highlighting the need for inclusionary zoning. That's obviously municipal, yeah. but in the United States, there's talk about the Biden administration leveraging federal dollars to ensure that municipalities act in accordance with inclusionary zoning. Unfortunately, I mean, we just topped yeah. up the yeah. gas tax fund. We doubled it. We exerted no leverage from the federal right. government exactly. in terms of our yeah. priorities, unfortunately. And then building more housing. I mean, yeah. We have a billion dollars that we've just put into a rapid housing initiative as an example on social housing, and that delivered 4,700 units. Well, a billion dollars at the federal level, pre-pandemic spending, pandemic spending is an even smaller fraction, but pre-pandemic spending, we're talking about less than a third of a percent in, yeah. in the total federal budget. Presumably, we should put significantly more money on the table to just deliver on supply. Yeah, so I, I think there are a, a few things that you could do. I, because there is such a housing shortage, to so make sure that every house has somebody living in it. We don't have an unusually high level of, of vacancies. You often hear that, that, you know, oh, well, you've got all these vacant homes. And, and I mean, that's true to a point, but I mean, the best data we have is that it hasn't changed all that much, but it's still a problem. I think one of the big problems is, is housing uh, being used for money laundering, having tougher money laundering standards. Some of the rules around beneficial ownership, so we can actually see who, who is buying these things, right. you know, because a lot of these houses get bought by, you know, numbered corporations and it's, it's hard to know what's going on. Because what often happens is that those houses that are used for money laundering do stay empty. Right, because you can't really rent them out without sort of drawing attention to, to what you're doing. So having you know tougher standards on there, there are things that you can do on non-resident ownership of housing, like New Zealand has done that. I'm a little less 
optimistic that that's going to make most, most of the change, uh, you know, from the real estate agents I, I talk to, you know, they're telling me that most of the non-resident housing is usually 20 somethings come over here either for a job, college or university, and their mom and dad, you know, if they're fairly high income from wherever they live, buy their kid a house. The idea being that, uh, you know, the kid stays in Canada for five or six years. And instead of paying rent, parents just buy a home. You know, if that that kid goes goes back to his home country, the parents just sort of flip flip the house. Now you can change all those rules, but I don't think that changes much because then I think the the parents just buy the house in the kid's name, and then it's no longer non resident. So, you know, countries like New Zealand have, have tried that on the sort of trying to block foreign money, but it's really hard to block foreign money without blocking, you know, again, the international students and visa workers who you're trying to attract in the first place. And then obviously just building, building more housing that that's expensive, but you know, everything has an opportunity cost. I mean, if we're trying to increase the population, then we're going to have to have the policies to support that. And we have to sort of decide, okay, what do we want to do? You know, or, you know, how important is it to us to have population growth, right? It's Joe Biden. Biden's always said, like, like, show me your budget and I'll show you what you value. You know, if we really value population growth, then we're going to have to make the investments up front to support that. I think your gas tax example is a perfect one that, you know, you guys are in a much better fiscal position than the provinces and certainly to the municipalities. They need help. So, you know, what conditions can you put on those dollars? So the idea is, let's say you're giving out transit funding, say, okay, you can have this transit funding, but you need to make sure you build X houses near those transit stops. And that kind of thing, I think it really sort of motivate action. Because the problem at the municipal level is all of their incentives are to not do things, right? Just their their political incentives. You know, I understand that if you're your municipal councilor and people are saying, well, I don't I don't like that development over there. Well, they're your voters or who you're going to listen to. And we live in a democracy and that's you know completely understandable. So we're going to have to create the conditions where it's easier to get to yes from a municipal side. It, it does come down to this question of what kind of growth do we want? It, you mentioned being an environmentalist. Well, in, in that world, you talk about sustainable growth, that we don't want growth at all costs. And then in the end, destroy our either local ecosystems or just increase carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. In this context, we want the growth that comes with immigration. But if we don't have the integrated policy that you're calling for to ensure that there's federal money, provincial money, and municipal federal municipal rules on the table to ensure that we're able to build the housing to match that increased demand, then we're going to have unsustainable growth that is going to be great for some people, but is going to really undermine the idea of homeownership for a whole generation of Canadians. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I particularly worry in the Southern Ontario context that, again, if house prices keep going and and we, you know, we may have a correction after the pandemic, these things are never going to be in a straight line. But if the 20, 30 year trend is increased prices and decreased affordability, at some point, young people are going to say, well, 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 this is this is not making any sense. You know, I can't afford a home and we've got all of this land in the green belt. Why don't we just build homes there? And as somebody who would really like to protect the green belt, we need to have social license, you know, and we're not going to have social license to keep the green belt, to, to keep all of our class one farmland if we price out an entire generation of young people out of the housing market. They're just they're not going to put up with it. And frankly, I, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't blame them. 
Elizabeth. They said, you know what? Yes, you know, we, we like the green belt. Yes, we want to keep our farmland. But if I have to choose between, you know, having some trees and having some place to raise a family, people are going to choose the the housing to, to raise their family. And you can't really blame them for that. I'll keep reading your series on housing and population growth so long as you keep publishing it. And where you do have ideas along the way, the beneficial ownership is a great example. It's a commitment we made in the last platform, actually, and one that obviously pandemic has, I'm sure, sideswiped some efforts towards, but it also does require action in partnership with the provinces in a serious way. And so this, it does come down to, I think, not only sitting down and saying, what can we do at the federal level, but also what are the levers not only cities can pull, but also provinces can pull. And then how do we sit down at the table with them and ensure that we're all pulling in the same direction? Because now that the banks have finally recognized that this is a problem, perhaps other policymakers, including at the provincial level, are going to be willing to act in partnership with us. We'll, we'll see. But I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your writing. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Upcoming episodes will feature former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour on drug policy and our current procurement minister, Anita Anand, to discuss vaccine procurement. If you've got an idea for a topic or guest for future episodes, do reach out at info at beynate.ca or on social media. The handle is simply beynate. Otherwise, until next time.